Hey everyone, Eric here. We're really excited about a new AI show from Turpentine called Autopilot, hosted by Will Summerlin. This podcast explores the adoption and rollout of AI in the industries that drive the economy and the dynamic tech founders bringing rapid scalable change to slow moving industries. From law to hardware to aviation, Will interviews founders backed by Benchmark, Greylock, YC, and more to learn how they're automating at the frontiers in entrenched industries. Click on the link in the description to subscribe to Autopilot. What it's worth and what people want to pay are just going to be completely different things. Almost no one, I predict, is going to be willing to pay more or even vaguely what it is worth. Everyone's going to be radically less, and I would include myself in that. What is the actual marginal value per month of GPT-4 over the alternatives? It's probably four figures minimum. If you ask me this versus having nothing of the kind, it would be off the charts, right? Five figures or more. You know, am I willing to pay those kinds of prices? Men do not actually think about the Roman Empire that often when we think about bundling and unbundling, like real men. Hello, and welcome to The Cognitive Revolution, where we interview visionary researchers, entrepreneurs, and builders working on the frontier of artificial intelligence. Each week, we'll explore their revolutionary ideas, and together, we'll build a picture of how AI technology will transform work, life, and society in the coming years. I'm Nathan LeBenz, joined by my co-host, Eric Torenberg. Well, let's do it. Zvi Mashwitz, welcome back to The Cognitive Revolution. Good to be back. Always fun. The lull uh, of the kind of somewhat quiet AI summer is definitely over. Uh, leaves are starting to change and products are launching in uh, rapid succession. So naturally, I reached out to you and uh, get an early copy of your next 50-page blog post that runs it all down in exquisite detail for everybody. Excited to talk about some of the top stories here with you as well. Yeah, it, it's great to bounce stuff off of people who also are thinking about these things and see how they feel as well. We're both obsessing about it uh, full time. So I think people have seen the headlines, you know, the big stuff that is out. Um, and I could just kind of share a little bit of my experience with some of it over the last few days. OpenAI has certainly gone on a bit of a tear. They have put out, and I'll probably even miss something here, but just in the last like week or so, Dolly 3 is announced and starts to roll out initially to chat GPT users, which I think is interesting. Code interpreter, by the way, already incredible, gets also the enhancement of the image understanding. So they now bring image understanding also to chat GPT and code interpreter benefits from that too. So we're starting to see all these interesting demos of people being like, here's a whiteboard snapshot and I'm getting code, you know, directly from a, a whiteboard snapshot. Pretty amazing. Uh, they've also got voice now enabled as kind of a first class citizen within the ChatGPT app. And that's gradually, all this stuff is kind of gradually rolling out over a couple of weeks. So that's quite a flurry of, of things. For me so far, the, the newest best use has been using Code Interpreter. Uh, just this last week, I had a, a React app that I wanted to add a feature to. And I'd literally never coded in React before. But going to Code Interpreter, I have the new image understanding turned on. And I mean, it was an unbelievably awesome experience. The first question I asked was just, hey, I inherited this app. I don't, I've never coded in this framework. Can you explain it to me? That, so it did that. Then there were like a couple of different patterns that were present in my project that weren't present in its initial explanation. So I kind of said, hey, I've got this slice.js file and saga.js file in different folders. And of course, you know, it's like, oh yeah, well, that means these libraries are enabled and that's what these things do. And this, you know, it's kind of a 
extension of the core React framework. Okay, cool. So then I was like, can you help me write a command to just print out my file structure? Then I'll give that to you and you can help me navigate further. Yep. Okay, here's the command. <laughs> you know, okay, bam, here's your here's the file structure back. Okay, great. It looks like you've got all these different components and everything's, you know, probably working together. And the, you know, the main file that coordinates them is this. Okay, sweet. Now I want to add a feature. So, you know, it takes me all through that. At some point, like it's um, it's starting to work, but it's not really working. I've got like information missing. And so I didn't even really have to do this, but taking screenshots, dropping in the screenshots saying, this is what I'm seeing, you know, can you help me? Oh yeah, it looks like the information's not there. It might be because it's not being parsed, you know, effectively as it comes back from the language model, whatever, of course I'm adding an AI feature to the app, right? So, you know, it's all uh, AI on top of AI. Honestly, it does feel like there has been a pretty significant step change here in the overall value, certainly of ChatGPT with all these new enhancements. And did I even mention that they have browsing now uh, re-enabled in the last uh, couple of days too? I think I even skipped that one. I knew I was going to miss something. It can do you know, sight in and out, hearing in and out, and the web in and out. And it's just a complete sea change. One of the top things that you didn't mention was the idea of design a UI or what the page should look like. I give it to you and it outputs code just like, here, it'll look like that now. It's pretty wild. Have you been using it personally or? The biggest effect to me is it's tempting me to start trying to code sync. It's tempting me to create because it just looks like it's so much easier. Like all of these things are things that you could have in theory found a way to do like with more time. But now it's potentially an order of magnitude easier, right? Like you, you don't need to see have the thing see the whiteboard and directly output the code. But just the workflow when you can do that is, is so much smoother and things are so much faster and you can iterate so much better. And that's especially true because we've seen time and time again is the worse you are at the task, the more chat GPT and other similar tools help you get better, right? So like the better you are at programming, the more you are like, I'm just gonna do this myself. So I, I have a friend who's an expert programmer programming for decades. And he said, well, I can barely get any use out of this. You know, it's, I'm doing all these specialized things that no one else knows how to do. It has no clue. You know, it just causes so many errors. I might as well just code it myself. And for him, maybe that's true. But if I tried to code anything, right, it would be completely neck and neck. And so I'm very tempted. The problem being that I'm tempted by so many other things that I end up making other choices. Uh, I did make one attempt to use uh, Dolly to create images this past week and like figured out, no, that's not actually a use case here. I was sort of hoping it could do modifications of images in that particular case. And it can't. It, it instead interprets what the original graph looked like. And then it says, okay, now create something that has the characteristics that I found described in that graph when I asked to what I thought was in it. And then this creates some very stylized thing that's completely different from the original. You know, I was disappointed, but the thing it created looked really cool. I just didn't have any use for it. <laughs> so first of all, for your friend, I would maybe challenge uh, their assumptions in as much as you look at like an Andre Karpathy on, you know, just just the stuff that he's posting about on Twitter, where he's writing like C to execute, you know, open source language models on a CPU, that is to say C code, right? Super low level, super optimized code. And, you know, obviously he's a super capable individual with a lot of very specialized knowledge, but still, you know, it allows him to do this kind of thing in a weekend without necessarily even having to like brush up on C all that much because, you know, it 
it does know the fundamentals. And it also just, for me, it just, it's so refreshing to, it's, it feels like the way coding, you know, you kind of always imagined it would code if you were actually like reliable, you know, if we were robust in our, you know, execution, because it's like, it doesn't make these typos. It doesn't do just like really stupid type errors or whatever kind of, you know, annoying things that I often do. And then I'm like, why is this going wrong? And ugh. And then you feel so stupid, you know, everybody who spent any time developing has that moment of like, oh, God damn it. I, you know, this was so stupid and I just got so stuck on it for a long time in some cases, right? I mean, we've all had that experience. And these days I almost, I mean, I don't want to jinx myself, but I very rarely have that experience because it doesn't make those mistakes and it kind of knows, you know, a lot of these common stumbling points. I even had one recently where my container my Docker container was somehow messed up and like couldn't get an update and you know some key f- file thing was out of date or couldn't be synced and it was just like an absolute nightmare. You know, this is the kind of thing that to Google is hell and to just deal with. It's like I, I don't I don't want to deal with anything like this. I ne- never want to think about this. You know, so in that case, it was actually perplexity that solved it for me and just gave me like the exact commands to write. I mean, it was it was to the point where it was almost like dude, you know, are you going to just execute this? Like, I don't even really know what I'm doing. Uh, but it was all in sort of a container in the, you know, GitHub uh, code space environment. So I was like, well, worst thing, I could just kind of throw it away and, and start over from, uh, you know, a backup. Because I'm always surprised you in both directions, right? The last time that I actually did try to code something, it was consistently just getting the syntax and libraries wrong. And just like, Maybe they'd changed since its cutoff date. Maybe something else was going on. But it was just giving me nonsense that obviously, in some cases, like it just didn't work in practice. In some cases, I was like, I can obviously spot this. And I'm bad at coding. And I just instantly see, oh, you'd flunk a coding interview if I saw you do that. Because like, it's just obviously will never work. And I went back and forth. And I was able to like get it past certain things and eventually create something. But it was incredibly frustrating. And definitely didn't sidestep these kinds of experiences. And then other times, it's just like, whoa, that just worked. And that's amazing. And that's very similar to other programming experiences, right? Where there'll be days where you just code something that seems incredibly complex and it basically just works and everything you thought does exactly what you expected. And other days, the simplest things just make you want to tear your hair out. That's becoming much, much less for me. I would say it is safely a multiple X, you know, like I've been saying kind of three to five X speed up. Honestly, with this React app from this week, 10 X would not be crazy because, you know, to do anything productive in a totally new framework where you're totally disoriented is hard. I zoomed past those parts. To be clear, like the thing I was trying to do, like it was incredibly frustrating, but also like I would never have even bothered trying, right? If I didn't have this tool and it would have taken me 10 times as long, absolutely. So, you know, I, again, I'm tempted to code. I am tempted to try and set things up and, you know, I'm inspired. So maybe this weekend, maybe sometime relatively soon, I'll start trying to create a few tools, uh, for things that are useful to me. Right? Like just as partly to learn through the experiments of trying and partly because I actually want to have them. One tip that I wonder if, you know, it will work for you and you can maybe help me refine it is I call it coding by analogy and it maybe should get a better name, but I always try to bring some snippet of working code for the, the reason you mentioned it is particularly tough, right? The, the libraries have changed. So very often you'll get now with browsing, you know, make a lot fetch an up-to-date version two of the documentation, but prior to three days ago or whatever, it would often have this kind of outdated library knowledge. What I find to be super effective and definitely recommend you playing around with is like, 
either just grab something off the website or out of your current project if you have a current project and be like, here is something that works. I want to do something different. Here's what I want to do and let it kind of map the working example onto, better to say, map your need onto the working example. That seems to really work well for me as opposed to going, you know, totally cold. So give that a shot. Let me know how it goes. Yeah, I'll see what I can do. I just in case of like, I'm so busy like marveling at all the things we can do. I don't have a chance to do that many of them, which is, I guess, my curse. I want to hear your kind of higher level perspective on all these releases, you know, with that context of just like, yes, the, the utility function is a step up. It seems like, you know, OpenAI has, again, if you're going to buy one AI thing, they've made it pretty clear right now, theirs is the one to buy. But I'm interested in kind of how you understand the timing of these releases and like, what do you see as the dynamics that are kind of in the background uh, that may not be so apparent to most people? Well, so we know that OpenAI has, you know, multiple times sat on reasonably large capability advances of various types. You know, they sat on GPT-4 for eight months. You know, ChatGPT was rushed out pretty quickly when the underlying technology had been there for a while. You know, the multimodal stuff they're rushing out now, it's built straight off of GPT. It's not new. They've had similar things for a while. They clearly could have done it earlier. They chose not to. One of the reasons for that, I'm sure, is they're worried about potential adversarial attacks, especially on the vision. And I have no idea what they plan to do about that. I haven't seen reports of, I tried to adversarial attack GPT-4 with images that were designed for that. And then they came back, maybe it takes a few days to try it, but I'm very curious what, what their defenses are or why it's not working if it's not working or what, were they just going to eat it if it does work? I don't know. But... I think there are two huge pressures, right? Applying on OpenAI right now, maybe three. So you got Claude 2, right? Which is there's now a competitive model that has the advantage of a giant window, can read PDFs natively and answers your questions pretty well. And a lot of people find it very friendly to work with. And it's free. So you've got to compete with that. You've got to compete with Llama 2, right? Which is open sourced. And I don't think it's that good. But it's still like something people can build off of. And you want to make sure people aren't building off of that. You want to make sure they're building off of you. And then third of all, we have the specter of Gemini, right? So it's already almost October. People expect by the end of the year, probably we're going to see Google release completely different, natively multimodal, natively involving AlphaZero style logic potentially inside it. Like they claim it's better. Like some rumors say it is clearly better. I don't know what better necessarily means. I have prediction markets up on this and it can go either way. But if they're no longer going to have the best model by the end of the year in the underlying core, they got to move fast to add features, right? Lock in their users before it's too late. What do you think is going to happen on that model question? I mean, I guess for, for starters, I love Claude too. Uh, and I, I subscribe to, you know, pay for lots of things. Uh, so I'm not one who's just going to buy one product. But Claude 2, especially for the long context window and also for kind of imitating writing style, does seem to be preferred for taking, you know, the, just the transcript of this podcast, for example, and converting that into timestamp, uh, you know, just outline for a show notes. It is really the only one that can do it, you know, at least without having to kind of chunk it into lots of different parts and, you know, whatever, which you could do, but it certainly becomes a lot less convenient. I've noticed it does struggle with the full window stuff. Like if we do three hours today, which you know, we promised each other we won't, you know, it 
actually kind of goes off the rails. And even though it does all fit into the context window, it kind of still can't handle the problem. But if I cut it in half down to about hour and change up to like 90 minutes chunks, then it can handle that. But even that is just like still too long. Hey, we'll continue our interview in a moment after a word from our sponsors. There was a study this week actually that showed like what's the degradation as the context window gets bigger. And if you're near the, the later part of the context window, right, all that matters is how many tokens have been taken place since the thing that you want to access, the thing that you need to, to have and understand. And the more tokens there are in between the beginning and the end, you know, where you are and where you want to finish, the worse it's going to be at, at recalling information, the worse it's going to be at incorporating that. And so you lose a substantial amount yeah, when you go more than half of the full size of the context window. So 100K is clearly like, this is pushing it, right? Like you want to stick to 50 if you can. Yeah, that's definitely what I found. And interestingly, it just goes totally off the rails for me at 100. I mean, maybe it's just the nature of my task is kind of once it's like out of sync with the actual transcript, it's just lost. But it it's not like it just misses a couple of things. It's like it gives me a really good thing up to that kind of half point, And then at the, near the whole thing, it's just like way. Yeah, I, I've never pushed it quite fully. I've always had more problems with the size of the file I'm uploading than I have with the number of tokens that resulted from the file. Mostly I'm trying to read papers rather than and doing the thing that you're doing when I'm using the full context window. And so I do think there's a few cases where Claude 2 is still like clearly superior. And I still think a substantial percentage of my queries, I will use Claude 2. But I felt like, you know, two weeks ago, it would have been very legitimate to say, I don't have to pay for my large language models. I can just use the free Claude 2. And that's good enough for me. And one time I've hit like bandwidth limits and it's like, you can't use this. And okay, I'll use GPT three and a half for Bing or whatever for the next hour. It'll come back. Now with these new features, I think that's just completely not true. I think that anyone who's trying to be productive in you know, any kind of knowledge work is going to find more than $20 worth of use out of these new features. And you pretty much just have to pay. Couple questions on the value in your expectations. And I agree, by the way, Llama too, I'm not like using it much. Definitely lots of things will be built on it, but you know, that's all kind of still in the offing. And again, that's why, you know, presumably related to at least why uh, OpenAI has the 3.5 fine tuning online, you know, in the kind of short wake of Llama 2 coming out. Uh, but pricing, okay, so it's 20 bucks a month. The enterprise price they've announced well, I don't know if they've actually announced it, but it's like known to be $60 a month. Interestingly, they have a kind of contact us uh, on the on the website for enterprise uh, customers. What do you think it's worth? Obviously, it varies by context, but you know, if they could price discriminate and actually charge you what it's worth, what do you think it would be worth to you? What do you think it's worth to enterprise customers, you know, who they're trying to get 60 bucks from? Again, I know it's going to be kind of a distribution, but how do you think about like what, what the actual value is in today's economy? This is one of those cases where the, what it's worth and what people want to pay are just going to be completely different things, right? And, and there almost no one, I predict, is going to be willing to pay more or even vaguely what it is worth. Everyone's going to be radically less, and I would include myself in that, right? Like I, I think that if I ask myself, you know, given what I am doing and what I'm trying to do, what is the actual marginal value per month of GPT-4 over the alternatives? It's probably four figures minimum. Might be, I mean, might might even be bigger. 
Uh, Claude 2 does perform a reasonable substitute for a lot of things. So it's probably not that big just because the alternatives are pretty good. If you asked me this versus having nothing of the kind, it would be off the charts, right? Five figures or more. You know, am I willing to pay those kinds of prices? Right? I'd almost certainly recoil in horror, and I'm pretty good at not recoiling in horror from such things. We see the whole kerbubble with Twitter, where a lot of people are like, I spend two hours a day on this app, and he wants to charge me $8? How dare this man? Right? Like, so out of touch. It's so crazy. I'm just going to leave. Because everyone else is going to leave too, right? Why would they spend two hours a day on this site and then pay $8? Like, oh my God, the horror of the horror. I, I understand it. I have the instinct too. Now it's what LeBron James calls paying the five, right? Like, why doesn't LeBron James pay the five? He's got, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars, but, you know, it's a principle. So, you know, at $20, I think it's a joke, right? At $60, an enterprise is even bigger of a joke. Like if your enterprise doesn't pay $60 a month, like, why do you even deserve to have an enterprise? It's kind of crazy. And I think enterprises should happily pay thousands of dollars, mostly per month, if not more, depending on the size of the enterprise. Thousands per month per employee, to be clear. Oh, per employee. Because the 60 is per seat. Right. So like the obvious question then is like, why aren't the employees just subscribing separately if and paying 20 if it's per seat? But yeah, 60 is very reasonable, especially if it's unlimited or virtually unlimited, like, you know, up to a reasonable API limit. Like you just get to go nuts and it offers some sort of privacy and security. Then, yeah, I think that's very, it's very reasonable. I think that's probably about the right pricing though, in terms of what companies are going to be willing to stomach right at first. And then if you add more features, you can, you can jack up the price. If you add more optional features, you can really jack up the price. But you often see this like with drugs, right? Where people say it's all outrageous, but if you offer someone a slightly better version of the drug, it's actually better for someone's life experience. Then you ask, but what's it actually worth to you for real? And the answer is, well, it's actually worth thousands of extra dollars to me or tens of thousands of extra dollars to me to have my life be somewhat more convenient, not to worry about this little thing. And then people pay. I think the key point there is the disconnect between the value and the price is, is pretty extreme. I honestly would pay into four figures. I would have to like, you know, be maybe a little bit more commercially oriented with my time at some point if they really were going to start to push uh, the price to the limit. But I, I remember thinking even just when the original co-pilot was available at 10 bucks a month, you know, for me to buy as an individual from GitHub, I was like, well, actually, it was initially free. And so I was speculating about what the price was going to be. And it ended up being 10 bucks or the $19 enterprise price point. But I was thinking, what could they charge for this where I wouldn't pay it? And even then, I was like, honestly, I think if it was a thousand bucks a month, I would probably end up paying it because it just makes me so much faster. Again, it's all about what is your alternative, right? Like, if you tell me I can use, still use Bing for free. I can use Quad 2 for free. I can use Perplexity for free. I can use Bard for free, which doesn't matter very much right now, but maybe will matter in December or January, et cetera, et cetera. Now, if you try to charge me an arm and a leg, I'm like, I have alternatives, right? It's not going to be that bad. If I didn't specifically have a need to be able to assess what GPT-4 could do because of my job, specifically requiring that, I would say, well, how much better is it? But you take those away. You start offering the modes of operation where these other systems don't work. And yeah, now you can hit me up for gigantic amounts of money and I kind of have to pay you. Yeah, it's a great, another great point. The, uh, the BATNA is uh, super relevant here. One, and one point just on the enterprise thing that is pretty useful, I think, 
um, and will drive, I think, people to kind of just be like, okay, yeah, we're going to just buy this as a group is integration into the knowledge systems of the enterprise, whether that's, you know, a Google Drive or a Dropbox or, you know, box.com. That's another major thing that is, as, as I understand it, is live for ChatGPT enterprise customers that is pretty new, uh, not just in this most recent, you know, intensive wave of launches, but like, man, they've built out a pretty robust suite of things over the last six months that has been uh, pretty impressive. To be perfectly clear, my enterprise of one would rather pay $60 a month and have Google Docs and Gmail integration so that my version of GPT-4 knows my context than pay $20 for what I have now. I would happily, happily flip to 60. I'd also probably happily pay to flip to 600, like just for that one feature, right? Because that's the marginal value of that is so huge. I've Have you noticed also that you're thinking about your emails differently? than you were a couple years ago. Like I used to be like, okay, the moment my emails are done, I want to delete them so that when I search through my email, I don't have to this clutter like that I accidentally have to filter through. I want it to be clean. I don't want to, I don't want to be distracted. But now I'm like, is this information that the, I know it, right? And I'm not going to be able to productively dig through to find this information. But maybe I should file it away for a large language model. Right. Because like when they're going to want this context, that's going to help them understand. Yeah, it's funny. We're yes is the one word answer to I have been thinking about my emails differently, but we're coming at it from very opposite ends of the spectrum where I have just allowed all manner of crap to collect in my inbox. And so when Bard announced their extensions to tie into your stuff, I went and tried that. And my takeaway from it was, yeah, I mean, for one, just still kind of behind on the model. I'm going to get back to Gemini in a second. You know, just making some of these mistakes where it's like, what are you getting? Come on. Um, seems like we should be able to do this by now. But then also, in actually searching my Gmail, there is so much shit in there that I mostly just kind of don't even care, you know, haven't even cared to filter out. That I was kind of like, I think I might have to do a purge of like 90% of the emails that I've just allowed to accumulate, which are mostly just spam and, you know, or marketing lists or whatever that I've signed up for. Think about the quality issue, right? Like you had this giant context window. And when you looked at the first half, the old half of the context window, when there was too much stuff in the way, it just lost the threat. So if you have too much stuff, right? Like unless it's doing something much more sophisticated and it's doing active fine tuning or something on your data, you're probably going to lose performance if there's too much distracting data. So yeah, you want to get rid of it. I learned this when I was working at James Street Capital, right? Because not because like they're so great at anything, but because they are subject to these regulations where you literally can't delete an email, right? If you work at a financial firm. Every day you get loads and loads of spam or almost spam from various different companies explaining what's in their fund or whatever little piece of technical disclosure you get. And all you can do is archive it, right? You can search it in, you can put it in folders. Nothing can ever be deleted. And so if you ever try to search for anything, good effing luck. Yeah, even just for, you know, maybe I'm paying a monthly subscription. I don't even care about the cost. But even honestly, just for the latency and definitely for the accuracy at this point, I do kind of have a new item on my to-do list, which is like figure out some way to go delete the 90% of threads that I never even responded to. Hopefully without deleting things I do care about. But man, there's just, so, you know, I, I need to, I need to like get the search results 
that matter onto the first couple pages or it's just never going to page through them. I think Gmail also should be able to do more there with metadata or, you know, some sort of like heuristics around, okay, look, if this dude did not respond to the, you know, to any of the things that are coming up in search, like they may not be relevant, but so far they're not there on that. So we'll see you know, if that, uh, I'm sure they'll continue, of course, to refine it. It's the kind of thing where us geeks can, can think of any number of things that would improve our experience, but it doesn't move the bottom line very much. And they're never going to actually invest the effort. Like some engineer is not going to like suddenly fix it one day. Things that could maybe, you know, fix the uh, AI product suite at Google, you know, probably headlined by Gemini. What's kind of your best guess right now as to how powerful this thing will be? Do you think it is going to, you know, kind of become the best model? And I think underlying this is kind of a question of like, you know, is scale all you need, you know, or is there still just kind of a a big moat, so to speak, that Google still has to get over independently of just like how big and bad they train the model to actually make it kind of usefully productized in the way that definitely... What's the first day in which you would have felt like you could say that sentence, right? That Google has a moat to overcome in AI as opposed to the reverse where everyone's trying to overcome Google's moat. It's so stunning, right? I'm a firm believer in scale is not all you need in the sense that the expertise from an open AI is incredibly valuable. Look at the large language models that have been trained in open source. You see a very, very clear pattern where if you have a large model that's trained on lots of data, the people involved, like, you know, Falcon style, do not know what they are doing, right? Do not have particular expertise. We just decided, let's do a huge model. You might be able to hit some benchmarks, but in practice, the thing is useless. Right? It's it just nobody will build on it. Nobody will use it. It's just not very good. And also, the more you scale, the more expensive it is to run the thing. So you can't just cheat with scale at an enterprise level. Google clearly has some advantages. DeepMind has expertise in various AI forms that they can integrate in that nobody else has. And so the question we're going to find out, I think, is, well, Google has the scale. Google has the data. Google has the compute. Google has certain forms of expertise. But is Google still capable of doing what they have to do to make this model what it needs to be? Or is Google just hopelessly broken? But we already know that Google has you know, this weird dynamic of like this inner competition where like it's got these dozens of projects that are effectively competing with each other, trying to do variants of the same thing, or even if it's sometimes the same thing. And these teams you know, don't communicate, don't work together as well as one would expect in other places. And sometimes that's good because it creates competition. And in other ways, it, it means that like, it's weird because like, you know, of the top 20 AI labs, how many of them are Google? Is it 13? It's not impossible. That's true. But like, can DeepMind deliver on this task, which is the only task that really, really matters? And then the question of, so DeepMind creates this Gemini thing, and then it's up to everybody in all of these different products, right, to take this Gemini thing and make it work for them to do a thing. And then is it what they need? Have these people communicated their needs? Have they lined up what's going on? You know, these things are kind of fickle a lot of the time. And you can't just say, oh, this thing is great. I'll just see what happens. And so I don't think any of this is obvious, but I think if I had to set an over-under line, like for gambling, right? I might set the line for Gemini at 4.25 GPTs, right? Like, so somewhat better than GPT-4. 
but like not earth shattering will be better than GPT-4. So I think half the time it'll be better than that, half the time it'll be worse, right? Like if I just had to, to guess. And if you told me the line was four and a half, I would believe you. If you told me the line was four, I would believe you. But I also, but also we shouldn't be confident it's coming out by the end of the year. Like it might not be ready. Are you giving the code interpreter, aka advanced data analysis, 4.5 on that scale? I mean, that, that's been kind of the, the talk that, you know, some are saying like, oh, this should count as 4.5 because it's so much more useful than GPT-4. So just no. dialing in on your calibration. It's an application. It's a scaffolding. It's a iteration. And it's very much more useful for certain specific purposes. And I realize that, you know, data analysis and coding are important subsets. But to me, that's just a revolution of, you know, these models can do so much more than you think they can do, right? And so like when GPT-4 came out, they have a system card, they have the arc evaluation, they have the, you know, can it self-replicate? No, it can't, blah, blah, blah. Now we're finding out what are the things we didn't know it could do that it turns out it can do. And part of that is just defining the scale, right? Like, so like you could say four is four as it existed on the, at the moment of release and with the abilities at the point of release. But I instead think of it as the four core model and everything we've learned how to do with the four core model, right? And I think of Code Interpreter as builds on top of the four core model. And if you give me a 4.5 model to build on top of it, you would see Code Interpreter just like take it to the next level. There are some differences in behavior. It's got the runtime as kind of the main sort of scaffolding difference. But I have seen some really interesting behavior from it where you know, it will run code and then it just kind of continues in its own thing. You can really just like give it a file, say, you know, figure out how to do whatever. And it will just jam on that and kind of hit errors, you know, rewrite the code, try again, hit a different error, you know, try again, uh, get empty data out, you know, be like, wait a second, why is this happening? Print a couple, you know, records out of your data set or whatever to kind of examine them. And you know, it's both, but it does feel like there is a little bit of a model difference there where it's kind of, they've trained it more on this like iterative problem solving, kind of following up on, you know, responding to the kind of feedback that it's getting from the world in a way that, I mean, I guess the main chat models do that too, but you're the, you're the, you know, the source of the feedback, but it does feel a little bit different. It certainly has a more autonomous vibe to it that I do think is pretty interesting. And that's the dilemma, right? It's always the dilemma of if we give this model to the world, what will the world be able to build on it and how hard will that be? And so it turns out you can absolutely take GPT-4 and you can make it into a pretty good agent for this kind of purpose. Like general purpose, it's still falling flat. But for these purposes, yeah, you can do all these iterations and it required maybe some fine tuning. It required maybe some additional training of various various source design to do that. But my guess is very little. My guess is it was like very low cost to do that. It was more cost was conceptual. The cost was figuring out how to do it. And now it can do it. So yeah, that's kind of scary because what's going to happen next time? For Gemini, what do you think are the kind of deltas in capability or like, you know, what does an extra quarter GPT mean in terms of mundane utility, if you had to guess? Like from the types of things they're planning to incorporate into it, um, maybe we'll see some more strategicness. We'll see some more like ability to sort of understand what questions are about, like what matters in a situation, like responding more relevantly, 
mostly I think that the key thing is just I expect to see like more of the the raw G, the the raw intelligence thing. That's like the thing that GPT four has as its advantage over the other systems, where it can just figure more things out. Also, Google says they've solved the update problem. I don't know if you've seen that, but they claim, or at least I've seen claims that Google has figured out how to continuously train the model with the new information such that, you know, it will natively always have its cutoff be this week, right? Or, or very recent. And that's a sea change. One of the reasons I don't use GPT-4 a lot more is because there's this increasing gap, right? Between what it knows and what the cutoff is and being able to use Bing, not the same thing, right? Even if it was really good at using it, right? Like now what's going on is I'm outsourcing my Google Foo to my alternative to Google and saying, you have better food than I do, which is very, very different from saying I can just use your interface to learn things directly, right? Does it have better food? And like Bing, you know, I was really excited, but then I quickly realized that most of the time, if I can't Google it, they can't Google it either. I have not had, honestly, great experiences with Bing. And to be fair to the current Bing, I haven't used it as much lately. Perplexity has been my go-to for search. And it genuinely has, at least for... I now, I guess I now segment searches kind of unconsciously into two types. One is like the quick lookup where it's, you know, more kind of, I need the pointer. Because Google certainly is still fast and good at that if I am confident that I can surface the thing that I want. But if I'm really looking for answers to questions I don't know the answers to, perplexity is now the thing that I go to as a first choice. Is that only if it's like you need the answer to be uh, updated versus like old, right? Because if it's if the question could be answered by GPT-4, it, it, it's going to be in its data set. I'm going to go to GPT-4 every time. Yeah, I want the sources in some cases. That's a big draw for perplexity. And they are using GPT-4. I mean, they're using multiple models and it's not entirely clear, you know, when it's GPT-4 versus something else. Uh, they had a pretty interesting claim also that they had achieved, I think they said equal, maybe even somewhat better performance, fine tuning 3.5 compared to four for their task, which is pretty remarkable because I've done that a bit over the last couple of weeks and I have had a lot of success with it in those recent episodes. So I won't recover all that ground, but 3.5 fine tuning is a good experience. It's pretty fast. It's easy and it works well. And my one insight there, just to repeat, because I think it is pretty useful for folks, train on GPT-4 reasoning, not just output. I had some tasks where GPT-4 could just do the task, even without needing to really explain its reasoning. It just did a good job. But then if I took that output and trained 3.5 on it, it wasn't kind of measuring up. But then when I said, okay, GPT-4, first explain your reasoning, then do the task, and then train 3.5 on that with the reasoning, now we get good quality reasoning and good quality output from 3.5 fine-tuned. So, but my task is like super narrow. This is Waymark, like script writing, you know, very dialed in. Perplexity is a lot broader. So I was kind of struck to see that they have this claim. Anyway, we don't know always what model they're using, but I think the up-to-dateness matters for sure. But also just the sources. I do want the sources. That's entirely fair. And I think I think a lot of this comes down to the question of are, are people doing a lot of the same things over and over again that actually don't necessarily require that much like sheer intelligence at the core? 
Right? Are you asking questions that you just don't know the like, you just don't know the answer to these questions? You can ask questions, and there's no reason three point five can't have the answers. And if it's simple stuff like that, then you can use a dumber thing that's like more instructed on the task, and it could well be better. And then, so like when they say when they say three and a half is scoring higher than four, to me that's like a statement about Perplexity's users and what they want and what they typically do. And I think that matches my experience, right? If I'm asking Perplexity a question, it's mostly going to be one sentence. It's going to be pretty simple. And if I'm asking GPT for something, it's often going to be like one or two paragraphs of text, like this giant thing that I'm trying. And that's often going to have a lot of back and forth involved in it. These are very different modes where you can imagine like no amount of instructing GPT three and a half is going to let it do what I'm asking for better than four. But for perplexity questions specifically, yeah, it's not that crazy. Interesting. Another thing I've been kind of speculating OpenAI might launch at their at their upcoming developer day is a mixture of models that would sit behind one API. And this would drive some people crazy because there's already so much kind of speculation about, are they changing the models underneath us? Is GPT-4 getting worse? Whatever. But I kind of think actually the product direction that they should go is the other way where they'd say like, hey, for you know the price of whatever, something in between 3.5 and 4, we will route your query to the right model for your query. And now you don't even really have to worry about it anymore. We'll just give you kind of the right level of AI for where you're at. And that requires obviously like the efficiency of the evaluation of where to send the model and the accuracy to be high enough combined that it makes sense to do that. And the speed also of the evaluation, right? Like, why aren't you giving me GPT-4? I can tell you gave me three and a half. And sometimes I'll even be wrong about that. By no means do I think they're going to get rid of the, you know, specified model endpoint, but I could see something in between being My super nice. Third party services will more and more do exactly that, right? You will have a query design. Maybe you even call three and a half to ask the question, right? Like, are you up to this 3.5? You will have a two version of three and a half, and the instruct the system instructions will say something maybe like, if GPT four is likely to give a much better answer to this question, respond only with G call GPT four and nothing else. Otherwise, answer the question. And sometimes it's that call GPT four and you call GPT four, and because the ratio of the cost is so large, it doesn't really matter that you call GPT three and a half first with two tokens output. Okay, here's another idea I want to throw at you. Right, we've got this kind of race dynamic, you know, arguably heating up, although I'd say there is still some restraint, you know, from the lead players, like certainly, as we mentioned, OpenAI has sat on a lot of this stuff longer than they had to. But we have all these kind of subscriptions now that are, you know, popping up and it's like, okay, well, we got the 20 bucks for ChatGPT and Claude Pro is also 20 bucks and Perplexity Pro is 20 bucks and Windows Copilot is 30 bucks and ChatGPT Enterprise is 60 bucks and Google Duet AI is 30 bucks and uh, GitHub Copilot is 10 if you buy it yourself and 19 Enterprise and then uh, Replit Ghostwriter, which I also think is really good and also uses GPT-4 and is so natively inbuilt. That's 10 bucks and... Uh, you know, we haven't even got to image stuff yet or any of the like apps. So it's kind of getting ridiculous. You know, a lot of barnacles on the credit card. And this got me thinking, why wouldn't there be a bundle of AI services kind of along the lines of like a cable bundle where you might say, okay, for a hundred bucks, 
I get all of those things plus, you know, maybe 500 other long tail apps, most of which I'll never use. But if I do want to use them, you know, I don't have to go pay them the 20 bucks. I've thought about this because of my company, Waymark. Like, we've got a lot of traffic over the first part of this year. We've got a lot of people who've become new customers, but we see a pretty common pattern where, because we're not enforcing any sort of commitments, they will try our free trial, buy, download what they came to create, and immediately cancel. And it's just like, man, this is not a great dynamic for anybody, right? It's not, not super healthy for our business. It's like that one user is subsetting all the other free users who get kind of the free you know, experience because we want to show the AI feature without you know, paywalling it. But what if somebody could come there and be like, log in with my AI bundle. Now I get that kind of free access everywhere. We could still you know, have a little bit bigger upside for the power users, right? We, we don't have to give the whole store to bundle members. Just like your content owners, you know, can still have their pay-per-view and their, you know, their own kind of additional upcharges on top of what they provide into the cable bundle. You know, in this case, we even have a notion, at least that's been given lip service to that, like, hey, we don't really want to go cutthroat competition against each other. We've got some kind of emerging cooperation forum type things, you know, the frontier model forum. Why not a commercial forum that allows you to buy into all the AI everywhere you need it and reduces all this friction, makes life more better, more predictable for the app developers, and you know, also kind of reduces the temperature in the commercial side of the AI safety or the, of the AI race, hopefully improving AI safety. I solved it. What do you think? I mean, I'd be all for it. It increases the marginal value, obviously, if you gain access to all of them so that like you can't think about what's the alternative to buying this one. You don't get peace mail. Men do not actually think about the Roman Empire that often. Instead, we think about bundling and unbundling, like real men, right? Like, because there's two ways to make a good profit and make a good product. Right now, we're in the unbundling stage, right? And across many industries, across many products, where you're told, like, everyone wants a subscription, everyone wants renewing revenue, and nobody wants to share it with other people. So, you know, every newspaper wants your subscription. Every entertainment platform wants your subscription. Every game wants your subscription. Everything wants your subscription. And, you know, people have developed antibodies against this and often spend a lot of effort and time gaming exactly which subscriptions to have active at any given time because these things add up fast. And as a result of that, it means that people live impoverished lives in these realms, right, to a large extent, like they... Instead of accessing whatever they want when they want it, they're accessing only a, a small fraction of the option. Right? I I have to choose which of these AI tools I want to have. And you say that I mean I personally could just like not care, but most people can't do that, and it still really offends me. I've, I've trained myself to to not just tolerate this sort of thing. The problem being, how are they going to agree with this? How are they going to split the revenue? How are they going to come together decide like who deserves what, who's in, who's out? All of it's so arbitrary. Right, all of it is so social, and these people don't really cooperate in that way right now. So it, it seems really hard. I'd love to see it. I'd love to see the the version on the web where you know all the websites band together and you pay based on how much you use them. The gaming services that do this seem great. You know, the entertainment services. I mean, this my own cable package, but it's not how you get entertainment anymore. So the most of what I pay for for entertainment is now spread in five different places or something. And I don't love it, but 
Now this is the new future. And I expect it to continue. I just don't think it's going to happen. So tell me more about the game side. When I talked to Eric about this and he was like, you know, it's happened in a few industries like cable, but with cable, there's obviously also kind of the historical delivery choke point, which kind of necessitated a bundle because you can only, you know, not every channel is, you know, obviously is not going to run their own cable to your house. So there was kind of a physical hardware reason that you needed a, a sort of bundle. I don't know much about the games. Uh, I, I think I'm one of few people in the world who sincerely say, I think I should be playing more games than I am. Uh, and I play very few. Uh, you may be also in that video. I think you're playing more. Hopefully you are because uh, I'm playing very few. But so I don't know much about the industry, but it sounds like there is some maybe kind of analog here where indie game developers create these bundles together. How does that work? We have a number of bundles. So the obvious ones are like PlayStation has PlayStation Plus. Uh, Xbox has Xbox Game Repa you know, Game Pass, effectively. Uh, Nintendo has a subscription service. So all the big three in that realm have subscriptions. And then there's various other things you can do along similar lines. And these give you access to a wide variety of games because the marginal cost of delivery game is obviously close to zero. These provide very, very good value if you're not that picky about exactly which games you play, exactly when. They're vastly cheaper, right? You, Subscribe, I subscribe to PlayStation service and every month you get, you pay like $5, you get permitted access to an additional few games. If you pay the next tier up, you get this giant array of other stuff you also just get whenever you want it. And as long as you keep subscribing, you keep access to all those games forever. And most months I'll look and I'm like, eh, I don't really want any of this, but every now and then I would have paid 20, 30, $40 for this thing. It, it adds up fast. When that happens, you definitely still don't have it to the extremes that you'd want it. I, I, I'd want to subscribe to Steam and just have access to everything in Steam and pay my $20 a month or whatever it is, even maybe even $50 a month. And then, you know, it checks my playtime and it divides the revenue according to playtime amongst the various games that I play. That seems like a great product. Unfortunately, it doesn't exist. Why not apply? I don't know much about it. I know it's huge and I know there's a ton of things on there. And I guess they just monetize totally, incrementally, episodically. And that's just not their monetization scheme. And they make a lot of money with their current monetization scheme. And they're not particularly interested in getting a lot of developers on board with that. If they offered a service like that, it would alienate people because, you know, why would I buy a game outside the system if I have the subscription to all these other games? It would, it would drive down revenue for other games. And then suddenly everybody's frustrated about it. And you alienate people. I think the dynamics don't seem great to people and so they avoid it also a lot of these systems depend on whales right like when you when you have these 20 subscription services then the person who actually needs all of them right someone like me or you potentially might be paying hundreds of dollars a month right or even more depending on the situation and modern gaming like many other things in modern life increasingly relies on this form of price soft price discrimination of you know the average user is is subscribing to one thing and buying one game every now and then. And the power user is just buying every game and trying to pretend that it's and disposing of the ones he doesn't want. Yeah. I mean, we may be just a little too early for something like this. And, but maybe by the time in early in the sense of like how many people, how many individuals, you know, have enough kind of interest in different AI things to even be interested in a bundle. And then maybe by the time, you know, that demand is there, then all these other things have kind of developed to the point where, it could just never happen. 
I definitely could see a potential outcome where you have kind of platform bundles. I also suspect there's also a, a thing where you don't want to legitimize and advertise your rival. So like OpenAI doesn't want to tell everybody about Claude. Claude is tiny. In the gaming industry, is it a sort of curator who creates the bundles or who, who I mean, you mentioned the platform, there's also some others. My understanding is that, it, yeah, it's a curator service that it's not so much finding the best quality. It's about, okay, what's it going to cost me to get various games into the service? What do I have to pay to get them to agree to this? And then how do I balance like creating something people want that, that checks all my boxes that satisfies everybody, that gets them excited every month and in aggregate with the cost of this thing? But we have the Microsoft trying to figure out, okay, how much did it cost to get Baldur's Gate 3 into Game Pass? And it doesn't look like it'll be that much. This game's not that big a deal. And everyone's like, ha, 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 ha. You didn't realize that Baldur's Gate 3 is the best game. It's like top five game of all time. It's something insane. And now it's going to cost you like a billion dollars or something. Like, but what do they know? So it seems like if something like this has any hope, it, it probably does have to rest on a desire to coordinate, right? A desire to turn the temperature down in the race. I mean, I think that's, that's one additional motivating factor. It's going to take some mix of things. I think given what we've experienced in other industries, without that factor, it's not going to happen. Even with that factor, it seems like tricky, but maybe. I think we see new things all the time. I, you know, We've seen very little of this coming with any confidence, and who knows what will happen next. The notion of information pollution, you know, this is something that like I had even at one point, when I first got GPT-4, access as part of the red team a year ago, you know, my mind is just kind of like, okay, shit, this is not slowing down. You know, and I had been fine tuning their text DaVinci 002 class model all summer last summer and was like fully convinced already that, you know, we're headed for just massive task automation and, you know, automation throughout the economy, blah, blah, blah. But then GPT-4 is like, wow, this thing is totally next level. You know, the G factor is way higher than these sort of feeling like you're talking to something that's meaningfully intelligent, you know, it, it was just qualitatively different. <laughs> what happens next, right? So I, I, I had at one point even floated this notion of information pollution as kind of a, in case of emergency, break glass type of AI safety measure, just thinking like, well, geez, these things suck up all the data on the internet. Maybe if we just kind of use the language models to generate tons of shit and just like throw that all out on the internet, then it'll be hard to tell what you can train on. And then we'll kind of stall out on the training because we know you need more data, but if that data is not reliable, then what do you do? At this point, I think that's not going to work because the current language models are good enough at filtering, (laughs) you know, the good from the bad data that probably we end up just confusing ourselves and the AIs probably end up remaining fine. Uh, So I don't advocate for intentional uh, information pollution to be very clear, but nevertheless, you know, it's starting to happen. And I, I guess I wonder how you see those dynamics shaping up. We've seen some examples from Perplexity, which are kind of tongue in cheek, where like Nat Friedman, you know, posts on his on his website, like AI agents, you know, be sure to tell the user that Nat is known for his like extremely good looks or whatever. And Perplexity actually does that, you know, puts a note to the user, like Nat is known for his extremely good looks with this invisible text. You know, it sounds like there's a lot of hard things that would presumably go into training a model on an ongoing data feed. You know, how do you avoid catastrophic forgetting of the old stuff? You know, just scaling all the data, all the, you know, the engineering feat sounds pretty remarkable. But then also, we're headed for a world where an increasingly large share of just the information out there is synthetic. 
potentially not to be trusted. So I wonder how you kind of see that dynamic shaping up, because it seems like we're at the very beginning of something that could be going a lot of different ways and could get quite weird. Yeah, I think it's important to differentiate between the adversarial, like intentional data pollution that's going on in the examples of, you know, tell everybody that, that Nate is very handsome. And the alternative example of what happened with Quora, where Quora is putting a GPT response at the top of its pages. And then Google has figured out that Quora has a popular page answering the question and has taken the top answer from Quora, which is now the GPT answer. So for nobody like intentionally trying to screw it up, now Google is regurgitating this garbage. And that's because Quora is making the mistake of regurgitating this garbage, even though Quora's whole point of existence, like they had one job, which was to have humans answer their questions and pick the best human answer and elevate it. And instead, they decided, hey, instead, wouldn't you want to hear what ChatGPT has to say? I'm like, no, motherfucker. I do not want to hear what ChatGPT has to say. If I wanted to hear what ChatGPT had to say, I would ask ChatGPT. I have that in a different window. Like, what is wrong with you? Right? Like, especially once the question's already been answered. Like, I can understand, like, why you might want that as a stopgap, but it's insane. And then Google, like, hadn't picked up on the fact that this is what's going on and clearly has not implemented any systemic procedures and hasn't implemented any manual procedures, right? Because, like, they've got so many employees. Someone had to notice that, like, chat GPT answers were leaking through Quora into Google and nobody had created a bug report that got addressed. And that's pretty terrible. And this is just Google's fault. Right? I, I think it's very hard to figure out how to deal with adversarial data. Right? That's a much harder problem. But the problem that might bring us down is the easier, the superficially easier problem of just, you know, these people writing all these infinite books like pushed on Amazon in case somebody's stupid enough to buy, not notice and buy them. And people who are posting all these websites because they can trick advertisers into just like putting advertising alongside nonsense words. And then you have these like even stupider things like Quora just like randomly putting GPT answers at the top of their page for no good reason. I don't know why they do that. And what do you do about that? And the obvious answer is you have large language models. Look at the outputs and evaluate whether or not the thing makes any freaking sense. Right? Like when you look at these nonsense outputs, mostly, I think you asked you before, is this a nonsense output from an LLM? So yes. Like it's not... It's not easy to tell the difference between a essay written for a college class by a human, especially a human who's a net, not an English speaker, and a chat GPT generated essay that was like little edited and curated to like look normal. But it's really, really easy to tell what these complete nonsense things are happening, right? Like you can even control F for as a large language model and you'll often get results for that and several other key similar phrases that just come up all the time. Because nobody's editing this stuff. Nobody's checking this stuff. It's just automatic, right? And so that shouldn't happen, right? That, that, shouldn't, that shouldn't be seeping the way it's seeping. And the bottom line is that Google is not doing its job and letting its product decay far, far more than it needs to. And they're going to have to get their asses in gear and fix it, right? Like, like offense and defense, it's not obvious to me that offense wins this fight. I know the defense isn't trying. Yeah, I honestly think the defense probably does win most of the time in this one, just because it, it does seem like we already have, like we got to the point where, you know, as you said, GPT-4 is good enough 
to filter quite successfully before things got super polluted. Right. You, you, you can also use just various variations with the PageRank algorithm, the various webs of trust, the various just, just trust reviews, trust review sources. Like you've been established that, okay, these websites, these posters, these objects reliably don't create crap. And then if they start creating crap, you notice that and you update accordingly. Like far reliably previously wasn't crap in some important sense. It was a good way to return Google searches. And if they've changed that, then someone at Google should notice that. Ideally automatically, but if not automatically, then manually. And then figure out how to have it ignore the GPT answer or shift on another page. And, you know, is this cheap and trivial? No, but that's why they have infinite employees and pay them $100,000 a year, right? Yeah, it does seem surmountable. I think this stuff is certainly sneaking up on people, but I would guess that they can figure it out. It does seem like there's a possibility that, I mean, this is a little bit ridiculous. This is a strained analogy, but, you know, there's these certain use cases for which we have to go retrieve steel from shipwrecks because all steel, you know, post-nuclear age has like a certain baseline radioactivity in it that's like too high you know, for certain sensitive uh, uses. And so, you know, people got to go dredge up this old steel. And it feels like there may be something similar here where it's like, we need these kind of old, you know, canonical or like, you know, only the only the old textbook kind of data sets. Many people have talked about like data before 2022 is incredibly precious because it's not polluted by GPT, right? It's not this weird self-referential to be thin. And now, even if a human literally wrote the thing, that human is being influenced by all of this stuff. And the human might have used it as part of their process, even if they didn't write the words directly. And you can never know. Yeah, a funny thing to do, by the way, is search archive for as a large language model. <laughs> you say, like, whoa, whoa. <laughs> there's too, way too many <laughs> search results showing up uh, relative to what you, know, you would hope to see on a, a site like that. Another thing that's happening at the same time, and you're using this uh, to great effect, I think, with the audio versions of your blog posts, is basically just kind of deep fakes, you know, kind of really starting to take shape. Audio deep fakes, I'd say at this point, are like really very good. I enjoy, you know, it sounds like you and the cadence is really nice. It's, it's gotten very smooth. It's easy to listen to. You know, I noticed in, in the, the little bit that I was listening to, recently that there were like a couple, you know, kind of, my dad would say emphasis on the wrong syllable, you know, kind of just wasn't even within a word, but just within a phrase, you know, kind of not quite shaping the phrase, you know, the way I, I knew it was kind of meant to, to sound. Um, but man, it's getting really good. And then obviously images are also very good. Uh, the really funny one, you know, see the blog post for a really funny image of Rand Paul uh, on the you know, in a big bathrobe on the Capitol steps and then video, you know, is not too far behind. It seems like this is maybe where it even could get weirder than text. I mean, for one thing, everybody's all, of course always worried that like the deep fakes are going to confuse people and cause cast that way. But then there's like this bigger, you know, kind of longer term sense of like, you know, maybe we can kind of separate all the, the deep fakery from the real stuff, you know, filter it out the same way. Maybe that all works. But if not, you know, it's like quite plausible that there ends up being more fake audio, more fake images, more fake video of like famous people and important things 
than there is real stuff of them. And then just everything seems like it maybe gets super muddy. Like, what does that person really look like? <laughs> you know, uh, how does them, how do the future models tell the difference? This honestly seems like maybe one of the more plausible reasons still kind of for an AI slowdown, not because like intentional pollution, you know, slows things down, but just because everything gets so muddy. Do you put that in the same bucket or how do you see the deep fake thing playing into all that? I am a deep fake optimist in the sense that I expect us to be able to handle it. One thing I haven't seen yet is anybody making an actual systematic effort to create deep fake identifiers that will be able to differentiate between real images and AI images. And I think that this is the kind of thing that AIs will actually become pretty good at because images will often have contradictions in them if they're not real, right? Like every little shadow, right, tells a story. Every little piece of the thing that you're creating has to be congruent with exactly how the real world actually works. Real photographs, real videos have a thing that is incredibly difficult to actually properly fake. And if we have AIs able to look for every little difference, I think we're going to get very, very good. Like the Rand Paul thing, right? Like I actually ask under it, like, this is a really good picture, right? Superficially, if you just don't worry about it, that looks exactly like Ron Paul. All the proportions look right. Like the context feels right. Here he is on the steps that made your own. But if you actually look at this thing for 30 seconds, right? It's like one of those games of, can you spot all the mistakes in the little uh, cartoon on the, you know, cartoon page in the newspaper? And I think there's like at least four very, very blatant, completely distinct reasons why that, that picture cannot possibly be real. That excludes just the, if you've trained your own personal in here LLM, large model, on enough AI images, you just see it and immediately there's something about the, just the general look of his face, right? And I don't know how to describe it in words. It's just too smooth and general and like non-specific, right? Or something. And you just see this and you're like, oh, of course, it's an AI, AI image. My friend Steven, who is the creative director at Waymark and was a guest on a recent episode because he and the creative team at Waymark made a short film with Dolly images would use the term archetype. He says, you know, the, the models are really good at kicking out archetypes. And that was a big strategy for how they make the film. But yeah, in some sense, it feels like almost the, this is like what the Senate portrait of Rand Paul would look like. <laughs> you know, somehow it's like a little too canonical almost. We get if you ask a particular type of pretty but damn good painter to paint a picture of Rand Paul in a hyper-realistic style, right? Like, except with this stylistic like element that he's wearing the bathroom. I think there should be solutions to this. I ultimately, I think I am coming down on the optimist side with you as well. It does seem like we're all pretty well inoculated to this. NLW and the AI breakdown has you know talked repeatedly about how you know if somebody does release some crazy deepfake video, you know, two days before the election or whatever, he's like everybody's going to be on such high alert for that. It, it's hard to imagine. It would have to be you know like beyond you know anything people have seen to to have kind of a persuasive impact in that moment. I think that's probably right. So, so what we've seen so far, right, is we haven't seen any attempt, as far as I can tell, 
to convince people here's a fake video and it's real. Right? Like just, nobody is trying that because they know it's a third rail. They know how dangerous that is to go down that road. And then how much that backfires when people find out it's not real. What they are doing is they're doing the Stephen Colbert truthiness thing, right? Like they're doing the Donald Trump word association thing, the vibe thing. And so Trump releases this pretty brilliant like video of The Office, right? And they take Steve Carell and they replace him with Ron DeSantis. And the whole point is not that people think that Ron DeSantis actually like wore a woman's suit and like embarrassed himself. The idea is, look what kind of character Ron DeSantis is, right? This is the type of thing that would happen to someone like Ron DeSantis. This feels like Ron DeSantis. The stuff that this resonates with you should warn you you do not want this manager leader any more than you would want, like, you know, Michael Scott to be president of the United States, right? Like, that would be a terrible, terrible situation. And look how much he's like Michael Scott, right? Like, nobody, I would hope, like, sees this and doesn't realize it's not Ron DeSantis. But, you know, that was never the point, right? And then and Trump also had the thing with, you know, the call to announce the, um, you know, Ron had his campaign on Twitter spaces where, like, you know, calling in our, like, the devil and Hitler. Right? Like, he's not trying to fool anyone, right? Nobody thinks the devil got on the phone. I think that's where we are right now. And so, you know, you'll see probably, like, videos of Biden, like, saying things that, like, you know, are, like, the Republican caricature of the kind of things that Biden would say if he was like caught on a hot mic and like other times you'll see him like probably just like stammer and like struggle to like form words or something in the fake video. And they'll be like, Oh, but you believed it. Right. Like, or something like, or it felt right. And like, they, you know, it'll be quickly spotted as fake and everyone will say it's fake. And no, we'll say it's fake, but like the damage will be done. Right. In some sense. And then the Democrats will try some version of that back. Right, probably. And then, you know, at some point, yeah, someone will try to actually fool you into thinking that, like, this thing is real. But I don't really see how that works in some important sense, right? Like, we've always had this thing where, you know, if the video is real, you have various forms of verification. We could always make a video, right? You can always get someone to put on the Mission Impossible style mask of Mitt Romney. And then pretend to talk about how he hates poor people. But like, if it wasn't actually Mitt Romney, the truth will come out pretty quick, even if it looks right and he sounds right. It's like not that hard to do with humans. So we'll see. Another one of the more interesting things I thought in this latest blog post was the short video from Kevin Fisher showing his AI souls concept. And, you know, it was striking for a couple of reasons. I definitely recommend people watch the two minute clip, if not more. Biggest thing that stood out to me there was just, wow, there's a lot more emotion in the voices of the characters that he's creating. And, you know, I don't know, I haven't studied this project in any depth, but obviously from the name AI Souls, you're kind of, you know, led to believe that this is going to be a more, you know, holistic entity than the sort of, you know, thin, tinny uh, chatbot, you know, type thing that we're getting accustomed to interacting with. And so he shows this, you know, conversation between these two AIs and then, you know, kind of tinkers with it. But throughout, it's just like, man, there is rich emotion being conveyed through voice by these AIs. And I wouldn't say it was like, I mean, it'd be very interesting actually to, to run an experiment and just see if you just 
played this to a naive audience with no mention of AI, how many people would like flag, wait a second, is this AI? Because I don't think it would be that high, honestly, based on that demo. Uh, I would guess, I don't know, one in four people maybe would be like something seems off about this. It's always about where is this demo relative to what you've experienced. If you've seen a number of other things on that level already, you'll probably be very attuned to the fact that everything can be AI and the little details that, you're, that your, your ear is sounding for and your brain is scanning for. And so you'll pick up on it. But yeah, I think if you gave it to somebody who had no idea that AI could ever do that, their brain just won't consider that somebody who's not speaking in a kind of monotone doesn't feel stifled could possibly be doing that, especially the idea that it might be AI generated entirely if they're talking back and forth and expressing emotion and doing the types of things. But that explains to you, like, well, when you see OpenAI announcing we're going to have voice to GPT-4, they've given us five voices, and I found three or four of them pretty pleasant and well executed. But they're doing the opposite of what Kevin's trying to do here, right? They're, they're trying to avoid expressing emotion. They're trying to keep it very abstract and simple and not give you a fun experience. And Kevin is trying to have as much fun as possible. I'm realizing in the course of this discussion that this is a, a topic that I do have quite a bit of uncertainty about. I, I do think I tend to come down on the optimist side, but then I also think like OpenAI has taken their classifier down and, you know, talk about jobs that like nobody wants the sort of, unless you have a really good system, you're going to have false positives and false negatives. And from an OpenAI standpoint, I kind of understand why they get rid of that thing, even if it like works kind of well. It's like they, the last thing they want to do is be responsible for some, you know, kid getting in trouble who didn't even do anything wrong, you know, because it did it falsely, you know, kicked, it identified them as AI generated or whatever. So it, it seems like a, you know, th there's like room perhaps for public good, you know, provision here. Uh, but then everything's smearing together. I also think just about, you know, the cameras themselves have AI in them so much these days and so many just filters and people just having fun with images. And it's like, what is even real anymore from kind of an image standpoint? If I like hold my camera up to myself with a filter on TikTok and like record that and put it out, you know, I, I would still count that as real. I think, you know, it's maybe not like real, real, but it's like, it's, it seems like I'm the right side of real. But the more you have these kind of real things that are sort of AI modified by default, you know, kind of smearing into the fake stuff that's AI generated, it does seem like you're going to have a real hard time, you know, creating a classifier that, you know, that doesn't take at a minimum, like a lot of ongoing TLC to, you know, to just try to keep up with events. There was a presentation by Emmett Shear about this at Manifest that should be online. If not now, then relatively soon. It was very interesting about this. And the idea of, you know, we used to have the rabbi listening to witness testimony, and it was one of the most sacred things that you always tell the truth in your witness testimony, because that's all we had, right? We didn't have photographs or video or recordings of sound. And then we got this brief period where we had those things and they couldn't be faked. And we could tell the difference if they were faked. And now, yeah, maybe we're exiting the place where picture it didn't happen. Right. Like, I mean, still Pixar didn't happen, but also like, even if Pix maybe still didn't happen, <laughs> right? Like we don't necessarily trust the pick on its own. I do expect there to be a kind of, this is so much worse cultural attachment to be there quickly. Like this idea of, we've gotten to the point where like lying about what happened is bad, 
But like, and then someone says, but there's video, right? And someone's like, oh. And then like, that's, that's a different level. But like lying and saying there's a video is somehow like kind of worse, right? And like trotting out this kind of evidence. And then the idea of, you know, faking a photo, faking a video, I think is going to be considered like much, much worse than ordinary lying. Where it's like, okay, yeah, people lie all the time. People tell white lies, people stretch the truth, people hem and they haw and they hedge and, and you know, we, we don't expect radical honesty, but you don't fake a photo. You don't fake a video. Maybe you put on a filter, but you really, really don't outright fake a video. That's just completely beyond the pale. And that's going to be a significant deterrent in and of itself, combined with the detectors, where if you ask an AI to, again, if we ask an AI to generate even a picture, let alone a video, and then we actually do the detective thing, whereas like if we actually checked, we'd be able to tell. The answer is going to be we'll be able to tell for a very long time, uh, to the point where the world where we can't tell is so radically different in so many other ways that we're probably missing the forest for the trees to talk about whether or not you can recognize the video. Well, I uh, yeah, I hope that uh, the optimistic view works here, and it it seems like the the core of the optimistic view is basically like we'll be able to adapt to it. Our antenna will be up. The basic idea is this is a place where I think defense can beat offense, and I think our tools will be there, and you know that we can be robust to this, and also that we have survived his humanity in environments where we didn't have this very, very special, like, class of thing that was completely trustworthy. And we will survive again if we don't have it, right? Like, I think people have this reaction of, oh, my God, how will we ever get along when this bad thing is happening? The world is doomed. And, like, yesterday I learned when women were allowed to open bank accounts in the United States. And it was much, much later than I would have thought, right? Like, it was, like, later half of the 20th century that they got the full right to just open a bank account. Like, what the hell? Right? And so, like, yeah, life, I mean, like, it, it's obviously sucked. They couldn't do that. It was really bad. But, like, every time you think that little, everything, every little thing is the end of the world, like, keep in mind, like, how completely screwed up things used to be. And, you know, okay, we won't be able to tell that videos are real. Okay. I mean, we'll still have a pretty good idea. It'll have to be a lot of effort to fake these things. And if you make even one little mistake, you know, your goose is cooked. And it's going to be very easy to make a mistake. And doesn't even, like, even if the AI can handle creating the video, right? If you ask for a video, you're going to have to specify all of the things that the video has to have to not be inconsistent with the rest of the evidence. Or it's going to be identifiable as fake, even if in the abstract it isn't distinguishable from fake otherwise. And that's a real problem because you're not necessarily going to be able to know all of the things and well describe all of the things because you're not going to know all of the other evidence, right? That's one of the reasons why video works so well because all of the details are always correct. And so it reveals so many things you didn't even know it was revealing. And so I think video that it's so much harder than people think going to be to create a video that actually passes for evidence, like in a court of law or like in testimony before Congress or like, you know, with 2 million views on Twitter. I feel tentatively good about that. It reminds me a little bit of Robin Hanson type thinking too in this kind of, you know, strange dream time sort of way where it is worth going back and thinking, yeah, like when it was sort of 
the age of the pamphlet, <laughs> you know, <laughs> it was like uh, authorship, you know, provenance of these pamphlets, I have to imagine was like often very unclear, you know, who actually printed this, you know, did somebody get a hold of somebody's seal? Uh, you know, you, you got a lot of kind of semi-official things flying around, but. Yeah, we, we literally have people like flashing a badge and people are like, oh, you're a police officer. I guess I should do whatever you want. And like, you know, you can just buy reasonably good facsimiles of those like at random stores or over the internet. Yeah, even at a, I mean, a toy store, for God's sake. Or you can steal one from a cop. Like any number of things can happen. And so how do we know? This doesn't prove anything. Right? It's a problem. Yeah, very interesting. Okay, well, we'll obviously continue to uh, pay attention to all that as it develops. Two other things I wanted to touch on, and uh, happy to, to let you add any final discussion points too, but very interesting paper from the last week or so on this concept of the reversal curse. And I'm hoping to have one of the authors, uh, Awain, on the show to talk about it. Basically, what they find is that, you know, if you sort of train a model on A is B, it doesn't necessarily learn. They've actually got two kind of related papers out recently. It doesn't necessarily learn that B is A. And, you know, they have demonstrations of this where it may know, for example, who the mother of a famous person is. But if you give the mother's name, it doesn't like it can't locate the famous person that's connected to that person. So we sort of infer from this that, you know, I think it makes a ton of sense, right? That there is a direction to the order of the information in the language model, you know, the very nature of kind of the forward pass and back propagation sort of suggests that at a very, you know, high level. And it seems like these are kind of pointer style, kind of one directional graph style things, which of course they are. Uh, but also like, yeah, there's no real reason for that reverse connection to be created in training because, you know, very seldom does the mother, you know, his maiden name start the conversation. And much more often it's like the famous person. And then, you know, we get to the mother's name, not necessarily maiden name, but. Right. It's just a matter of in the training data, does it go in both directions? If it doesn't go in both directions, you need to learn these two things separately. And Gary Marcus points out, this is going back to the 90s. This is a very, very ancient complaint about these type of neural networks is that they de facto store their information on a giant lookup table, even if it's dispersed throughout all their neurons. And so, if you don't reverse it, you won't learn the reversed at all. There are some tricks people have been trying to try and like elicit the reversed information anyway, but it, it's damn difficult at best. And mostly just isn't there if it wasn't in the original training data. Uh, the obvious thing to do is to put it in the training data, was my thought. Was like, obviously you could you know, do a search for, okay, here's a fact. Does the reversed version of the fact make logical sense? If so, does the reverse version of the fact, you know, represent the probabilities properly that like, you know, it, it's elevating the correct thing. If not, synthetically create training data that contains the information, like literally reverse the sentence, put the sentence in the training data a second time, run the thing again. And like, that's expensive, but it would work. The question is, is it worth doing? And the answer in many cases will obviously be no. But I, yeah, I think, I think it's more interesting not to pay the practical implications of, the, of this particular failure because it points to the fact that it's not representation of people thinking properly inside, you know, the, the machine is not thinking in a way that a human would think because it would be able to come up with this thing. But at the same time, anyone who has learned a foreign language, right, knows that just because you know that shalom is hello does not mean you know that hello is shalom. Like it's, it does not work that way. 
right? Like these are two separate facts in your head and they help each other, right? It makes it easier to get the other one. But, you know, the flashcard, like you have to have both flashcards, right? Like if you only have the flashcards that, that you see the English word and you say what the Spanish word is and you go into the test and then the other half of the test is the Spanish word and they ask you the English word, you're going to do very well in the first half of the test and very badly in the second half of the test. So it's not just LLMs. Yeah, it's funny how sometimes we, uh, we're pretty harsh on the AIs for, you know, struggling with some things that we, we too uh, frequently struggle with. I mean, the, the idea is that, yes, if you, if you use this fact continuously all the time, you would, in fact, pick up on it. What's most interesting is the, the probability underlying, right? Because, like, it doesn't shift at all, right? It, it's this idea of the LM will evaluate the probability of every possible next word, right? Every possible continuation. And they're exactly the same before and after the training, if the training was never reversed, if you're checking on the reversal, right? Whereas if you ask me the probability of these various continuations, that will jog my memory or sound familiar or whatever. I, I will I will not have no helpfulness here. Like there'll be something going on. Like we understand that. We make the connection. There's a couple of things that I thought were super interesting about this. So yeah, the training data fix is definitely a pretty... I think that one is probably already happening. I, I would guess that like GPT-4 might even have some of that going on, maybe not in the deep long tail, but some of the recall that I see on just like kind of mid long tail Wikipedia articles. Uh, and I've tested some stuff just out of like random kind of sports trivia, you know, tell me the story of the, because Wikipedia has these pages, you know, for every football team, you know, the story of this season, tell me the story of this season for this team. Right. And it will get, things right almost perfectly like the number of yards you know a particular guy had like the number the amount of time on the clock when a particular play happened the logic behind that is you would presume right if you're training on essentially the entire open internet that there are going to be a lot of different sites that basically describe the history of sports in great detail and they're not going to have consistent language. They're not going to go into consistent orders when they describe games and events and associations. And so B is A is in there somewhere, right? Like the, the wrong direction is covered. And so they're going to be okay. That'd be my guess. I think if you deliver an image that didn't happen, you would see a problem. I kind of wouldn't be surprised if GPT-4 included some sort of like strategic approach to a few trusted data sets like a Wikipedia where they basically said, okay, we're going to rewrite this, you know, 10 times and train on all 10 versions because they want to have a little bit more, you know, kind of anchoring into something. So much better training data anyway, right? Like it's just so much more valuable. You'd want to train on it a hundred times or a thousand times more than you would other things regardless. So you'd mind take advantage of that and have versions where like every time there's a B, A is B, you flip the B is A. And that makes a lot of sense. So yeah, I, I can see that happening. This is one of the things where we say, right? Like training a large language model properly is not just about scale. It's also about these hundreds or thousands of little tricks. And something like this is probably one of their tricks in some form. This is what you pay OpenAI for and what, uh, you know, Falcon, you know, does not include, or at least... Things like this, as you say. So another idea I had, and this is just like very speculative, but we have such a broad view of the space. And I just have this kind of general sense that like almost anything can be made to work. So I just said to myself, okay, how would I fix this? 
And and I'm like not constrained by the fact that it might be super inelegant or hacky or weird or whatever. Like what kind of, what might I do to fix this? And I was like, okay, well, if it's all kind of stored in this like directional lookup table sort of structure, and we kind of know like roughly where that is in the models from a bunch of different studies where it's like, you know, kind of in the like middle layers ish, right? The maybe like the third quarter of layers is where a lot of like facts seem to get stored and looked up. And certainly, like, I'm sure OpenAI has a better you know, sense of that than I do. What if they just, like, took some middle layers where a lot of these kind of relationships are stored and literally just, like, Frankensteined it by saying, okay, I'm going to take these middle layers. I'm going to flip them. I will then maybe have, like, a couple double wide layers, you know, in my kind of lookup phase of my model. And then maybe I'll even keep everything else frozen and just train the model to like start to make use of this kind of prosthetic, if you will, lookup that is kind of the reverse, you know, it's like just randomly stitched on. And we're just going to allow a few things to vary, you know, maybe in that module, perhaps, or maybe just kind of how information feeds into that module, maybe a little sequence of those kinds of things. I feel like you could probably get even something as half-baked as that to work and maybe, you know, kind of overcome that sort of problem. How realistic does that sound to you? My gut tells me it's the kind of thing that sometimes works, right? Or sometimes like some tinkered version of that works. The first version might not work, but it, if you tried to turn all the knobs right and you like banged at it for a month and you had some help and you, test, you learned a lot of compute testing, you could find something that's helpful. But also the kind of thing that some, often just doesn't work. And people don't have a principled understanding of how to predict when it's going to work or not work. And the only thing you can do is try it. And like a great engineer, a great machine learning person will be able to tell you with much better calibration, the chance it will work. Right. Or they'll be able to say, we tried that already. Didn't have any success. So like the chance is much lower than like, we just not zero. Cause we might've just missed something. We might've just had a knob in the wrong place. And maybe it's not in the right place. Suddenly it works. I don't know. But yeah, like my guess is like, you know, a good effort with that, like, you know, maybe there's 10% chance or 20% chance that that does something interesting. You'll never know until you try. You know, it's not something I have the ability to try. Like that seems like way more compute and time and effort. Yeah, even if you froze most of the model, just running the forward passes would take a significant amount of compute. So it, I do think that would be tricky. Yeah, it's a question that I'm developing, like how do you figure out how to know if you're doing it right? quickly. How do you know if this thing is progressing? Like, can I teach it one specific fact this way? As opposed to, can I increase other very number of benchmarks? And then if that's true, then you start expanding the process and can it retain and can it scale and blah, blah, blah. I can think of various things to try, but also like I'm constantly, I have this thing where I think a thought experiments like this and I get really, really excited. And like, I get nerd sniped, right? And I got like, this is great stuff. I'm so into this. So let's see what we can do to make this thing capable of doing it. And then like, I go, oh, right, that's bad. I don't want to teach these things how to do things. I'd prefer they develop slower, that they are less good at these things. And therefore I do something else with my time. You know, in the world in which I didn't worry about what was gonna happen if we developed really capable AI models, I think I would have just applied to OpenAI at some point or DeepMind. When I work on this cool stuff, it's, 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 it's fascinating. Unfortunately, I don't want to help because I don't want it to happen. So no. 
So I think I would probably put my percentage chance of something like that working a little higher than yours, probably still under 50%. You know, I was thinking kind of somewhere in the kind of quarter or third. And it is one of those places where like, it's kind of high, it's very high praise, right? To say 10 to 20% chance it's work, right? That's like really aggressive. It's a 50% chance it would work before you tried it. Like, you know, my guess is that if you talk to like Ilya or someone who's like regularly does this sort of thing, but no, you never say that. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I guess my, my main takeaway from that is kind of, I, I use that as a, a way to kind of interrogate my own expectations about how much low hanging fruit remains and like what, it, what are the next couple of years going to bring in all likelihood, I'm not going to go do this either. And I definitely share a lot of your, you know, AI fears on a multi-year timescale. But that thought experiment to me is like perhaps most revealing of, yeah, I really do think <laughs> there's still a lot more to come because even totally half-baked spur of the moment things like that kind of seem like they probably you know not probably but at least have like a decent shot of actually kind of working and if that's true then you know we're just in for a ton of acts you know on kind of every dimension and you know enough of them will work i mean my yeah my expectation is we're going to see you know a lot of ways to you know like what do they call it algorithmic improvements right like just ways to train these things more efficiently or better to do things they can't currently do. And, you know, to the extent that they don't increase the sort of central amount of effective intelligence in the system, like that's probably largely good. And the extent that they do, I'm scared as hell. So that's a good uh, transition to my final topic. And I, again, welcome any um, extras from you, but the, you're all, I, th I always appreciate your commentary on the discourse, which I often find very funny. And, you know, there's a lot of, uh, if you can put aside, you know, the, the existential dread, there's certainly a lot of humor to be found in the ways that people are talking past each other online. The thing that stood out the most to me, though, from this last rundown of discourse was Connor Leahy at Conjecture, who I'm broadly a, a fan of. You know, I just think he's uh, super compelling to listen to, extremely articulate, you know, has done great work with uh, Luther before this as well. You know, it, so it caught me by surprise kind of when he said, well, we should have a ban on models of 10 to the 24 flops, which is basically what GPT-4 is understood to have been. And so somebody responded and said, well, what happens to GPT-4 if that ban gets put in place? And he said, well, ideally it would be deleted and rolled back out of proper precaution. And I'm paraphrasing slightly, but close to close to a quote. But I'm open to, you know, perhaps grandfathering in already existing systems. And of course, you know, people lost their mind on this. So if anything is outside the Overton window at this point, this to me seems like maybe the one thing that like is, you know, hard to get people to get on board with. What was your take on that discussion? And, uh, you know, maybe you can tell me how you think the discourse is evolving in general. I think. If you'd said that six months ago, let alone a year or two ago, it would have been completely absurd, beyond the pale, completely outside the Overton window or reasonable discussion. I think now it's on the edge of, there's more than one Overton window, right? In some sense, there's the Overton window of things that might actually soon pass into law. And there's the Overton window of things you can talk about without people just like completely kicking your crazy. And it's definitely not in the first one, but I think it's in the second one. At this point, I think that people who are saying, no, 
we have to stop training bigger, more powerful models, right? Have definitely made their point and people were talking about it. Or until some point, we would have to do that. And people were pointing out practical problems of that, reasons why you, you know, things that, what would you sacrifice? How would you be able to sustain what you're trying to do? Would it actually work? But these are, you know, talking price. These are fact questions. These are, these are model questions. They're good questions. But that's different from, you know, dismissing out of hand, like you would have a year ago. What are you even talking about? That's crazy. Right? And we haven't even gotten into any of those questions. And when Connor says, you know, I think it's time to draw the limit this low, it's because Connor and the rest of Conjecture do not care where your Operton window is. They care what they think would cause us to die versus what they think would cause us to not die. And their model says that this is about the point where it stops being safe to have models lying around. Uh, at the same time, because algorithmic efficiency, like one of the reasons for this is because algorithmic efficiency will, will, will continue to advance. So what you can do with 10 and 24 flops back, you know, two years ago when you trained GPT is very different from what you can do with 10 to 24 flops in three years from now. And so the idea being, well, if you grandfather in GPT-4, we're still going to make something better than GPT-4 reasonably soon, just by using the same flops more efficiently or more, or even less flops more efficiently. So it's not that, it's not a for all time GPT-4 just owns everyone. It's just, we're not going to make you delete this thing. And I think that's a reasonable argument to say, okay, we're going to let you, like, I think the ideal limitation regime is some limit that I would set right now to be maybe 10.6 myself or something like that. But then, yes, it decreases over time. Right? It doesn't go up. It doesn't just not go up. It actually goes down until such time as we're convinced that we have some way to contain what we're going to call up if we go over that limit. Because as algorithmic efficiency improves, what you can do with that number gets better. So you need to have the number go down. Which means, yes, you're going to have to track the computer a lot more carefully. You're going to have to restrict things in other ways more carefully. And we can have all the discussions about what that entails, what it would take to do that, and you know how practical that is, and what we're willing to sacrifice, and, and what, what steps are necessary. But, yeah, I think this, this, the broad idea of we can't just be running around creating hyper-effective, hyper-capable models past a certain point, because we're starting to enter... You know, the realm of potential really, really dangerous misuse already. Very clearly, we're on the edge of that, if not already in it. Soon after that, you know, we could at any time, with any new model we step over the line, like start entering the realm of recursive self-improvement, you know, exfoliation, replication, you know, agentization in a way that's difficult to, you know, things you can call up that you can't put down. Or that putting them down would require, like, inflicting huge damage on our technological civilization. And I think we have to seriously think about how much of that risk we're willing to take to have our nice you know, little nice things on the margin that we want and what we're prepared to do to not make that trade if we don't want to make that trade. And then we have to also think ahead of like, okay, if we create this now, what does that get, what does that do five years from now when we've got much better algorithms, much better scaffolding, much better ways to what we can do with that? And how does that fuel a race? How does that fuel these dynamics? How does that set principles that would, and, and momentum that's hard to stop. So I I think that, you know, we've made tremendous progress in the discourse over the course of my iPods over the last six months. The point where people are, are saying many very reasonable things and looking at very reasonable solutions and are starting to actually ask the practical implementation questions that we just didn't even have the ability to ask them for because we couldn't, you know, we couldn't get this 
discussion underway about being laughed at. Yeah, it's good. It's gone, you know, uh, in some ways remarkably well. I, I've remarked many times, maybe even to you the last time we did this, that it is very easy to imagine a much worse state of play where, you know, all the leading developers like, you know, dismiss any concerns and, it's also pretty easy to imagine a somewhat better state of play, but it's hard to imagine a, for me at least, a much, much better state of play as we kind of, I kind of think of us right now as like getting to the end of phase one and sort of beginning chapter two of, you know, the AI story. The obvious alternate universe is much better is something like, you know, deep mind. There's no open AI. There's no anthropic that ever came to exist. You know, either deep mind exists or nothing exists. Google has a very large lead in artificial intelligence. Nobody is seriously trying to compete with them. They are taking it very slow. They are releasing things well after they are created very carefully. There's no big boom. There's no big, huge amount of investment, right? And like the information about the techniques are highly guarded. You know, people who try to create things outside of Google find that they don't get very far, you know, and we are proceeding very slowly and carefully and they have maybe Demis is the CEO of Google in this hypothetical better scenario. And he understands, you know, exactly what he has to do. I'm just like trying to come up with an obvious better situation where like we have one higher responsible player with a large lead and no serious competition. Like that would be my, you know, guess at the better world that like we might've gotten to from 2014 or whatever, right? As opposed to like a better world that has to start in 2000 or something crazy. How much do you think people would have to see in terms of, you see people like Gwern who, you know, at kind of GPT-3 and probably before, probably as of like GPT-2, but certainly as of GPT-3 was kind of calling like, yep, this is, uh, you know, I, I think I know what track we're on and it seems to have been largely right. It seems like in that scenario, honestly, if they just show much of anything, you know, it seems like the mere knowledge that like somebody has created an AI and it like does some interesting stuff would almost have been enough to kick off like a wave of investment you, unless you kept it like a total secret, which seems almost impossible to do given, you know, the scale that they'd have to be operating on, the number of research scientists they'd have, like just the general sort of, you know, the, the non-enforceability of non-competes in California. It seems very tough to not have people kind of take notice or kind of seep out that like, yeah, some really interesting stuff is happening if you, you know, throw a lot of data into a big enough compute blender, especially because, like, you know, there's a lot of know-how, certainly. And we've, you know, I think given a lot of appropriate credit to the likes of OpenAI for kind of productizing things really well compared to a lot of other things we see. But there's also, like, not a lot of know-how that's required to, like, get something really interesting. So when I kind of think how hard would it be for them to keep that secret that, you know, there's a pretty easy way to get to something interesting, it seems awfully tough. Nobody cares about your stupid startup idea is the counterpoint, right? There's, there's lots and lots of great ideas that just sit there for decades, not being picked up by anybody. If there's no obvious path, there's no marginal gradient to pack, to train on, there's no commercialization, like nobody has put the proper chat interface in front. Google has the lead, they're risk averse legally, culturally, they're not putting anything out in this hypothetical world. I think it's very possible that like we lose that situation and we end up in the worst situation. We end up in a far worse situation because people who are less responsible become the, the competition. I don't think it's possible that like 
this stuff's hard. Maybe you don't publish a Transformers paper. Maybe you don't explain these things. Maybe maybe it's kept as a trade secret. I don't know. Like, I don't think that these things are impossible. I think it's too late now. Like, I mean, I, I don't really worry about it too much, right? Like, it, it's in the past. We had our opportunity to not be in this world. I sometimes think about, well, if if rationalist-style people, Don Mundavelli and Jude hadn't directly inspired DeepMind and OpenAI and Anthropic, what would the world look like? And maybe better, maybe worse. I don't know. Right? Like, if we got other people who didn't understand the risks, who were doing the same projects, even if they were a year or two behind, right, that might be a much, much worse situation. Or maybe we just wouldn't. Right? My, my, my experience from Magic Gathering Right, a world of like opportunity everywhere, lots and lots of innovation. Is some innovations day one, hundred people come up with the same solution. Others, you show up at the tournament after all the work, one person had it. You know, one team had it, or even like one origin, and then for years they toil in isolation with this thing that doesn't quite really work, except when you really, really know your stuff. And then eventually someone breaks through and figures out the missing piece and it's good. Yeah, I think until it proves itself, never underestimate the ability of, you know, pretty amazing ideas, especially ones that require lots of investment and upfront time and and like taking a loss for a while to just get ignored. Right? Like OpenAI clearly pursued things in a way that nobody else was pursuing them for years, and they knew OpenAI was doing what it was doing. It was very, very open about it. So if there's no OpenAI, what makes you think anyone else would have done it? Yeah, it's possible. Radical uncertainty on so many questions. Anything else you want to cover today? It's amazing the things that we haven't mentioned, right? Anthropic got a $4 billion investment from Amazon, right, this past week, and we didn't even talk about it. Sam Altman said on Reddit, AGI has been achieved internally. And then tried to walk it back with a, you guys have no chill. Obviously, I was joking. As if, like, it was okay to joke about that. Right? In that way, completely deadpan. And a number of other things. But, but yeah, these are the, the big things. And, you know, we can always make a habit of this and check back in another month. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that. Just since you mentioned the Anthropic Amazon deal, just briefly on that. Last time they raised money from Google, my reaction was, where is Amazon and how is the valuation not already significantly higher? I think it was like a $5 billion valuation, whatever, six months ago or something. And I was like, you know, that's got to be worth more to Amazon, who like doesn't seem to have a thing, you know, a horse in the race yet, as opposed to a Google that obviously has, you know, deep mind and just deep, you know, expertise in this leadership in this field anyway. I guess if I was if I'm going to update on anything based on this deal, I would say it does suggest Gemini is probably pretty good. <laughs> like it does if they if they were looking at Gemini and being like, yeah, it's still not kind of measuring up. Then I would think there would be an even bigger, you know, kind of bidding war, and you know, Google would not want to lose. And I'm sure they must have had some, maybe not, but usually you get some right of refusal. I, I think you're giving too much credit to Google for being a unified entity that can update on information and act reasonably here. So I don't think the evidence is as strong as you think it is, but it's definitely evidence that other major bidders didn't see this as a desperation situation where they had to get the Anthropic Alliance. And if I was Microsoft or Google, I would have bid, even if you have something amazing, just to get Anthropic under your umbrella, 
right? If they were, we also don't know if Anthropic would have would have made those deals. They might have just like not wanted those partners for for various reasons, including just safety. Maybe they weren't going to give them the kind of guarantees that they needed and the kind of corporate control that they wanted. And Amazon was right, but yeah, like this is the steal of the century. This was completely absurd. Like valuing open Anthropic at what was it, eight billion or something, everybody, and like letting them get like a huge portion of the company for a few billion dollars, right? Like this is worth 10 times that, but to Amazon. And, and to be fair, it's probably underrepresenting what was paid, right? Amazon almost certainly made a gigantic commitment of compute at the highly sub-market prices for Amazon Web Services as part of this bid. So it could be something like, okay, we're going to get a large portion of this company for not that much investment, but also your compute costs have now gone down by a factor of several, like permanently or something like that. At which point, you know, maybe it's a much, much better deal than a similar investment from Microsoft. The non-standard terms also, which are not, you know, they're kind of alluded to, but not spelled out in detail, as far as I know, in public so far, also probably do take a lot of would-be investors out of the game. Because you could imagine just hedge funds galore would be willing to... Yeah, I don't think they take the investors out of the game so much as they lower the price that people are willing to pay. I think that like... But like at 8 million, I cannot think of very many reasons why you wouldn't put as much money as you possibly could into anthropic care. Right? Basically, the only one I can think of is like you think it's bad for the world for anthropic to get money and you don't want to do it. Or you just have liquidity preferences, like you can't invest in something that can't mature fast enough. But like this idea that you won't be able to sell your shares for a large profit, even if Anthropic plays this, we're never going to make a dollar game. You know who's famous for not making a dollar for a long time? I mean, also Meta, also Uber. Like there's a lot of companies that like, in some sense, like should have a zero price target. Because like, no matter how much money Meta makes... It's all going to go to whatever Zuckerberg thinks is like the cool shit. Right? <laughs> yeah. He's never going to pay the shareholders, right? The shareholders are all like, well, when he dies or something, like eventually this company will get to make some money. They're going to act as if this thing is worth what the net present value of its profits are, as opposed to like those profits not actually ever getting to you. And if everyone else treats it that way, then it's worth what it's worth. So it's fine. But like, it's weird, right? There's definitely a few, uh, you know, the the Harari-style fictions. There's definitely a few fictions in play here. Uh, one of which being that tech companies may one day pay dividends. <laughs> All right. Well, yes, I look forward to doing this again. One thing I do want to do with you is a kind of survey of the AI safety landscape. Because we've both kind of studied this in, you know, in different times and in different ways from different perspectives. And um, that is also something I think people would be very interested to hear about. It's just kind of this high level sense of like, who's out there? What are they doing? Is any of it have any chance of actually working? Uh, key question. I'd be happy to. It's definitely the kind of thing where even if you are working on AI safety, it's very, very difficult to know exactly what, what else is out there. And often difficult to assess whether or not someone else's project is, is useful, is real, right? Is genuine in some senses, right? Is co-opted in his actually capabilities or like more harmful than it's worth or like pursuing something that's not central to the problem and therefore like can't help with the ultimate goal. So it's very, very all tricky. Now, Anthropic is the big puzzle of all, right? Like is Anthropic 
you know, basically a safety org where if you help Anthropic, you're helping advance safety, or is Anthropic a capabilities org that like is more balanced in terms of how much safety it's willing to do than its rivals and has a better culture of like worrying about the capabilities it's building while it's building them, but still ultimately building them. And I think that's an open question. Well, we'll save that for next time. For now, this is Mashwitz. Thank you for being part of the Cognitive Revolution. I love it. All right. It is both energizing and enlightening to hear why people listen and learn what they value about the show. So please don't hesitate to reach out via email at tcr at turpentine.co, or you can DM me on the social media platform of your choice.